0: Bible to Acts 7, Acts chapter 7. If you're wondering if that was a lead-in to the message, it has nothing to do with the message. Acts chapter 7, as we're going through the Bible uh, verse by verse and chapter by chapter on Wednesday nights, so let's pray together. Father, uh, we thank you for your love, and thank you that we can just celebrate you and the joy of having you in our lives, and God, I just pray for your encouragement in, in our lives tonight. Would you minister to our hearts in those areas that we're weary and we're struggling, Lord, and we had a difficult time just getting ourselves in here tonight. Would you, would you minister to us in that place? And Father, for those that find themselves in a, in a very joyous season and they're rejoicing, we rejoice with them and pray you would bless them as well. We're thankful of your knowledge of us, God, that you know every thought. Lord, you know every hair upon our head where we would sit tonight. Would you minister in a very special way? In Jesus' name, amen. This evening, we're going to look at the trial of Stephen and ultimately leading up to his martyrdom. And if you remember from last week, he got accused of this, that he was blasphemy against God, against Moses against the law, and against the temple. That was the end of chapter 6, is that's what's being brought against him. And that's important to remember as we go into chapter 7, because he's going to answer those questions. He's going to bring out how God was working apart from the law, how God was working apart from the temple. And just like any good speech, it's all leading up to a main point. So if you would look with me at verse 51 of chapter 7, we see this conclusion to Stephen's statement to these men who are putting him on trial. This is verse 51. He says, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You've always resisted the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. He's going to go through Israel's history. And remember, these guys are Jews. They're scholars. They knew their own history very well. So why is Stephen taking the time to give them this history lesson? He's showing them in their own history how they resisted the Lord, how they resisted the Holy Spirit. And if you're just joining us on Wednesday nights, a little bit of background on Stephen is how is he introduced to us? Because of a need, the widows were not getting served, the Hellenistic widows. And so Stephen was raised up to make sure that widows had food and to wash the tables. He was faithful in the little things, and now he's faithful in much. God poured out boldness and wisdom upon Stephen's life. So we begin in verse 1 of chapter 7. Then the high priest said are these things so? So he asks the question, are these things so? Are you really blaspheming God, Moses, the law, and the temple? In verse 2, and he said, brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father, Abraham, when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran. They cherish and they value Abraham as their father, the nation of Israel, And we'll find in these next few verses, Stephen's pointing out God was working in Abraham's life before the law was given, before the temple was built. This is what God said to Abraham in verse 3. And he said to him, get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. This is the beginning, the conception of the nation of Israel. He's getting called out of the Ur of Chaldees to go to a land that God will show him. Does God ever work in your life that way? He leads us into the future and the knowing is in the going. God's an always a forward motion God, meaning that he's always leading us into the future, but he doesn't always tell us where we're going. And that can be nerve-wracking. So I want you to walk with me one day at a time. And I'll give you the information that you need as we travel and journey together. God knows us better than we know ourselves. Sometimes if he gave us all of the information, we would argue with him. We're going where? No, I don't think so. I don't want to go there. So God says, just do A and I'll show you B. The knowing is in the going. Focus on what God has for us today. In verse 4, then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran, and from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you dwell now. So God brought Abraham into the promised land, the nation of Israel. I know there's a lot of controversy over this geographic location, but we have to know from a biblical perspective that God gave this land to Abraham, to his descendants, and specifically to the descendant of Jacob and the 12 tribes. In verse 5 Speaking about Abraham, and he gave him no inheritance in it, not even to set his foot on. But even when Abraham had no children, he promised to give it to him for possession and his descendants after him. So Abraham never was able to receive the inheritance of the promise. God said, you're going to have the land of Canaan, but it's going to happen for your descendants. Notice the timing. It's going to be 400 years later. So God says, Abraham, your descendants will get this land, but not for 400 years. Verse 6, but God spoke in this way that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them 400 years. This is Israel's time in Egypt. They were in Egypt for 400 years. They got there through a famine, and we'll see that more in the, the next few verses, why did God wait 400 years before he gave, him, gave them the land? Genesis 15 tells us that it was a time of repentance for the Canaanites who would be wiped out and annihilated. I'm sure you've heard this. How could a God of love order the genocide of the Canaanites in the book of Joshua? And what people don't know and don't understand is God had given that society 400 years to repent before he ordered judgment upon them. Those that like to try to shoot holes in the Bible don't give you the full story. That's why they were in oppression for 400 years because God was long-suffering. So we go on into verse seven. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, says the Lord. And after that, they shall come out and serve me in this place. God dealt with Egypt. God was faithful to his word. We have to understand this in our own lives. God's promises are not fulfilled on our timetable. Isn't that true? But he is going to be faithful to his promises. He's going to fulfill each letter of his word. Then he he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob. And Jacob begot the 12 patriarchs, which became the 12 tribes. Jacob's 12 sons became the 12 tribes of Israel. This covenant of circumcision was an outward sign of the fact that these people belonged to God. So that's the first part of this history lesson, God working in Abraham's life even before the law was given. Verse 9, And the patriarchs, being these 12 tribes, becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him. So remember the theme. What's the reason that Stephen is speaking? He's to show how the fathers rejected the work of the Spirit. And God was working through Joseph, but the patriarchs, these brothers, they got envious of Joseph, and so they sold their brother into slavery. I want to point out as we all have struggles in our own personal relationships. Every family has its own struggles and difficulties. Sometimes as Christian families, we put a lot of pressure on ourselves to be perfect and we're not going to be perfect. We're all dysfunctional families that are desperately in need of the intervention of God and the grace of God at the cross. And as you study specifically Genesis and you look at the beginnings of the nation of Israel, what we just read quickly, if you'll go back and read in detail, Abraham's family struggled greatly. We find Isaac's family struggling Jacob. These 12 sons, man, they were a brood of trouble. And what they did to Joseph is mind-blowing, right? You thought you were having troubles at home. Has your kids ever sold one of your other kids to be a slave? They're like, we thought it was the ice cream truck. It turned out to be the slave traders. And there goes Johnny, right? (laughs) probably hasn't, hasn't happened. And what we see in the midst of even Israel's rejection is God's love and God's work of redemption even in the midst of their failure. So Joseph is sold in verse 10 and delivered him out of all of his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and made him governor over Egypt and all his house. What man meant for evil, God used for good. God used all of the troubles in Joseph's life to bring him to the exact location that he needed to be. First sold as a slave, then falsely accused of raping his own boss's wife. Placed into prison, forgotten, some dreams, interprets the dreams, ultimately finds himself in front of Pharaoh to interpret the Pharaoh's dream, and then he's made second in command. A God story. God delivered him out of his troubles. If you find yourself dealing with the evil of someone else, you feel, ah, man, I feel ratted out. I feel sold as it would. No, ultimately, God's working a plan. Verse 11. Now famine and great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan, And our fathers found no sustenance. And if you look at a map, Israel, Canaan, and Egypt, they're neighbors, they're close together, and there's a famine in this whole region. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out fathers fathers first. And the second time, Joseph was made known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to the Pharaoh. Notice that second time is specific that Joseph revealed himself to his brothers on the second time. Jesus was rejected and became the deliverer, just like Joseph, right? And when is Jesus going to be recognized by the nation of Israel? At his second coming, the book of Zechariah tells us. So as we go through chapter 7, it's all pointing to Jesus and how Christ was rejected. Verse 15, so Jacob went down to Egypt and he died. He and our fathers And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham brought for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. Verse 17. But when the time of promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt. Did you notice that? The time which God had promised to Abraham, 400 years. Now God is going to begin stirring for the deliverance of Israel Under this oppression of Egypt, they begin to grow and they begin to multiply. I think of the second coming of Jesus Christ. No one knows the day or the hour. Only the Father knows the specific time of the second coming of Jesus Christ. But it's predetermined in the heart of God. He knows exactly when that time is. And it's going to be fulfilled exactly the way that he wants it to be. Verse 18 Tell another king arose who did not know Joseph. So a new pharaoh comes on the scene. He doesn't know of the kindness and the wisdom that Joseph showed. This man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they may not live. This was the pharaoh's attempt to destroy and weaken the nation of Israel, is to kill all the baby boys, two and younger. And notice again the emphasis of time. It says, at this time verse 20 Moses was born Moses was born Sometimes babies don't come at the most convenient of time Babies don't know that it's a recession and babies are born in the midst of recession and depression Babies are born in the midst of wars I wonder how many babies are being born in Ukraine right now as that country is in turmoil Syria is in civil war. No doubt there's there's babies that are born. There's babies that are born in the midst of very difficult and tumultuous relationships, and here comes a child. I wonder how Moses's parents responded at this time. The excitement of, oh, we're expecting. I wonder if we're going to have a boy. If we have a boy, this is what this means. Most likely, he's going to be killed. He's going to be taken from us. He's going to be executed but God's working in the midst of the most difficult of times I struggle with this we all struggle with this but may God give us the lens to see things through his hand that he's working even in the midst of difficulty God's working in this difficult time at this time Moses was born and was well pleasing to God and he was brought up in his father's house for three months But when when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. We get more detail in Exodus, don't we? We find that Moses was put into the Nile River by his parents. This was the only hope of Moses living. Pharaoh's daughter sees this basket and she draws Moses out of the water. That's what Moses means, to be drawn out. And She says, I'll call this baby Moses gives the child actually back to Moses' biological mom to nurse him and then be taken into her care. God's intervention. God's intervention. The faith of Moses' parents to say, we're going to put this baby out on the Nile River. We're not going to turn this baby over to the authorities to be executed. And God moved in a powerful way. We look at this and we go, what are the chances? Right? What are the chances that the Pharaoh's daughter would be there by the Nile River and God says there's no chances. This is God's working and it's God's hand. Verse 22, and Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. So he's a mighty man in his words and also in his deeds. Now when he was 40 years old it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. Moses' life breaks up into increments of 40. He lived to be 120 years old. And his first 40 years are here. And at his 40th birthday, it dawns on him, it comes into his heart to visit his brethren. He knows he's Hebrew. Maybe it's remembrance that he has with his mom before he was handed over to Pharaoh's daughter, and he wants to go and visit them. Again, God working. God is putting this in his heart. What's God put in your heart? Is there something that's dawned on you and you say, I'm 40, I'm 60, I'm 80, I'm 24, but this is on my heart? He follows this. Moses follows what God put on his heart. Verse 24 And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. So he sees a Hebrew being abused and he stands up for this Hebrew and he ends up killing the Egyptian. Verse 20, For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they didn't understand. So Moses was anticipating that God was raising up him to be a deliverer of his people. God had already put that into his heart, and he's thinking, Oh, they're going to be glad that Pharaoh's son is sticking up for them. He's our deliverer, but the people didn't see Moses that way. Verse 26, And the next day he appeared to the two of the men as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, men, you are brethren. Why do you wrong one another? But he, who did, but he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Then at this saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian where he had two sons. Another chunk of 40 years of Moses' life. And when 40 years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. God waits 40 more years before he appears to Moses and gives him this call to go back. God's patient. The first 40 years of Moses' life, he learned he was somebody. You're somebody. Pharaoh's son you're trained in all of the wisdom of Egypt quite a culture shock to being Pharaoh's son and getting cappuccinos brought to you every day and chocolate chip cookie dough ice cream and a nice membership at 24-hour fitness or wherever else and haircuts and massages and you name it to now he's out in the wilderness he fled for his life he ran for his life married has two sons thinking that his life is done, that this is a dead end. He had to learn now that he was nobody. First he learned he was somebody, now he had to learn that he was nobody. But then the last 48 years of his life where he goes back, God uses him to deliver the people, take them through the wilderness, he learned that God can use anybody. And isn't that the lesson for us? Society says, you're somebody, and God's got to show you, well, really, we're a bunch of nobodies. But God can use anybody that's surrendered to his plan and his will. We have great detail of this account in Exodus of God appearing to him by fire in a bush. Verse 31, when Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight. And as he drew near to observe, the voice of the Lord came to him saying, I am, present tense, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. Then the Lord said to him, take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Interesting studies of sandals in scripture. You're saying, really? Sandals in scripture? I did notice that more sandals are out this evening, because the weather's warmer. Sandals are great. But actually, you look at sandals in the scripture, and here, Moses is told to take his sandals off, because the place that he's standing is holy ground. As you get into the New Testament, there's also a recording of sandals. It's with the prodigal son. And he comes back to the father, and he has no sandals because of his sin. And his sin caused him to be destitute. And what does the father do? He puts a robe upon him and says, hey, here's some sandals. And that's the grace of God found in the new covenant in the blood of Jesus Christ. Verse 34, I've surely surely seen the oppression of my people who are in, in Egypt. God saw it all 400 years. Don't think that God doesn't see the oppression in your life as well. I heard their groaning and I came down to deliver them, and now I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, and I would underline that because remember, they're very familiar with the story of Moses. And he's being accused of blaspheming Moses. That's why he's going to die. And what he wants to show is, look, your fathers rejected Moses in his first coming. Again, the rejected became the deliverer. The rejected became the savior. Jesus was rejected by Israel in his first coming. He became their savior, and they will recognize Jesus in the second coming, just like they recognized Moses in the second coming. So verse 35, this Moses whom they rejected, saying, "'Who made you a ruler and a judge?' Is this the one God sent to be a ruler and deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush? He brought them out, and after he had shown wonders and signs in the land and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness 40 years. Verse 37. This is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear. This is Deuteronomy 18. Moses is speaking of a greater prophet, the prophet, God in human flesh. So Stephen is pointing them to the one that Moses pointed to, Jesus Christ. He's saying, if you really cared about what Moses said and what Moses thought, you'd be concerned with this prophet that he foretold about. Verse 38, this is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai, speaking of Moses, And with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give to us, he received the law, whom our fathers would not obey, but they rejected it in their hearts, and they turned back to Egypt. Remember when the law was given? It was broken the day that it was given. Moses went and heard from God, and while Moses is hearing from God, the nation of Israel enters back into their worship of idols specifically the golden calf. I mean, what is it with the golden calf? What is it about a cow that people want to worship? I know beef tastes good and milk is good, but why in the world would you want to worship these cows? And so they start worshiping this golden calf. They melted down their jewelry that was given to them as they left Egypt. And here comes Moses coming down from the mountain and finds them engaging in all this wickedness. And Moses broke the law. He broke the tablets Out of frustration, so there's got to be something greater than the law, and that's what Stephen's pointing them to. He's pointing them to Jesus, who who saves us. Verse forty, saying to Aaron, "Make us gods to go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, who did we do not know what has become of him? We can take note of this, and we can learn application from it. In times in the wilderness, in times of testing our flesh is going to want to go back to Egypt. And we find from reading the Old Testament account as they looked back with longing at Egypt saying, where's all the leeks and where was all the onions? We don't have any leeks and onions out here in the wilderness. They didn't remember accurately the bondage that they were under. Satan has the same cards that he plays against humanity over and over again, and in times when it's difficult of following the Lord, he's going to bring out that card and say, hey, remember when you were the party animal? That was awesome. Remember when you just did whatever you want? Oh, that was fulfilling. Oh, you don't really want to have brothers and sisters in Christ who hold you accountable. That's not worth it. Your real friends were over here in the world, and we don't remember the kind of bondage that we were in. Amen? So we want to be careful that our heart doesn't turn back towards towards Egypt. In verse 41 And they made a calf in those days offered sacrifices to the idol and rejoiced in the work of their own hands. When we turn away from the Lord, we're going to turn towards self-worship. We're going to turn towards selfishness. We're going to turn towards our own accomplishments. In verse 42 And God turned and gave them up to worship the host's of heaven. They began to worship creation more than the creator. That's epidemic today. Church idol worship is alive and well today. Society worships the work of its own hands. Society worships the hosts of heaven and mother nature, creation instead of the creator. What a downgrade going from being able to worship the creator to worshipping creation. This is humbling as well because God will honor your choice of worship. He'll honor it. If you want the golden calf instead of him, he'll say, okay, I'll turn you over to it. You want to worship your own hands? Go for it. You want to worship the hosts of heaven? Go for it. God in his love doesn't force us to worship him. He leaves the choice up to us. Probably the most important decision that we make on a daily basis is what we're going to worship. Who are we going to worship? We become like what we worship. God turned him over to worship the hosts of heaven. Continuing in verse 42, as it is written in the book of the prophets, did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifice during 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You also took up the tabernacles of Moloch and the star of your gold Rempha. Images were made to worship and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. This is Amos chapter 5. Idolatry in the nation of Israel started in the wilderness, continued into the promised land, multiplied in the book of Judges, went like yeast infecting the whole entire loaf throughout the kings and the chronicles, and then finally God said I'm taking you captive out of Babylon for a time of of captivity. In verse 44, O Israel, O our, excuse me, our fathers had tabernacles of witnesses in the wilderness and he has appointed instruction and, and he, as he appointed instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. So this is speaking of the tabernacle that God gave to Moses prior to the temple. Verse 45, which our fathers having received in it turn also brought with Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David. So God giving the promised land to the children of Israel during Joshua's generation, who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. Remember one of the accusations brought against Stephen is he's blaspheming the temple. So here Stephen is showing God's work apart from the temple. He worked during the time of the tabernacle. Now he digs into the temple itself and the temple never contained God. In verse 47, but Solomon built him a house. Speaking of God built, or Solomon built a temple for God. However, the Most High doesn't dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? Please bear with me as I say this, but the children of Israel had made too much of the temple. What? What? They made too much of the temple? Here they are worried about Stephen blaspheming the temple while they're blaspheming God and they don't care. While they arranged for Jesus to be crucified at the temple. The temple... Had meant too much to them, and they lost fact and they lost sight of that the temple was a place to meet with God, but the temple didn't contain God. We don't want to make this same mistake, do we? We're thankful for our church building, but it's simply brick and mortar. When you guys aren't here, this is a very lonely place. You come into this sanctuary when it's empty, and it's a giant room. You're the church. No building can contain God. We don't want to change our behavior when we come to church. The nation of Israel, they would come to the temple and act one way because this was the holy place. But now we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Worship's to take place in our lives in this location, but in all locations. So now we get to verse 51. It's the key verse. He's laid out how Israel has resisted and rejected the work of the Holy Spirit. You stiff-necked. This is unwilling to yield that's what a stiff neck is isn't it you get that stiff neck and it's like it just it just won't yield it won't churn and that was the hearts of the nation of israel here god and his love keeps working the sovereign plan of redemption but they're just unwilling to yield we need a spiritual chiropractor sometimes that's what a chiropractor does i'm gonna take this neck that's unwilling to yield and i'm gonna (laughs) bludgeon it into submission I mean, who came up with chiropractic anyway? It almost seems like medieval treatment, but it really does help your body, right? And sometimes our hearts, they become stiff-necked, and, and we need to say, Lord, I want to be willing to yield to you. So you're stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart. These are hearts and ears that are not marked by God. Circumcision was always to be an outward symbol of the life that had been touched by the Lord. He's saying, your flesh and your heart has not been dealt with. You always, that's quite a statement, you know. If you're in a discussion with a loved one or a disagreement with a brother or sister in Christ or a coworker, you're not supposed to ever use the words like, you always. And then the other person goes, well, well wait a second. I don't always do this. And it's strong words, right? But God means it here. This isn't an exaggeration, this isn't just emotion. He says, you've always resisted the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. These words would cause either great repentance or great anger because he went for the jugular here. They honored their fathers even almost more than they honored God. He's saying, look, your fathers didn't honor God. They resisted the work of God and now you're following in the footsteps of Your fathers. In verse 52, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? So now he's going to clarify. He's going to bring it a little closer to home. And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one. Of whom you now have become the betrayers and the murderers. Who have received the law by direction of the angels and have not kept it yeah, those prophets in the Old Testament, they spoke of Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah. And you guys betrayed him, and you guys killed him. So you killed the prophets, and you killed Jesus Christ. Verse 54, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. Scary, right there, you know? You're hoping that they'd be cut to the heart, and they would repent, and they'd go, oh, our fathers rejected the work of the Spirit. Our fathers rejected even... The foretelling of, of Jesus. We've just murdered Jesus. Oh, we feel so convicted. We want to repent and believe. But instead, they just start gnarling their teeth and gnashing their teeth out of anger of what Stephen has said. Verse 55 it's quite a contrast. But he being full of the Holy Spirit. Now, which camp do you want to be in? I know Stephen gets martyred and Stephen gets killed. Stephen gets taken to God's presence. Jesus stands up to welcome Stephen into his presence. And if we look at our lives and go, there's a lot of resistance of the Spirit. There's a lot of gnarling my my teeth. Oh, Lord, please help me. God, please please help me. I want to be more like Stephen, who's full of the Holy Spirit. Notice where Stephen's focus is. Gazed into heaven saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. So through this whole process of being arrested and being on trial, Stephen made the choice that he was going to focus on the glory of God and meditate upon Jesus Christ. God then opens up to him a vision of heaven where he gets to see a sneak peek of God's glory. God gives him what he needs to get through the stoning, the martyrdom, And he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Church, this is key. Maybe you have someone coming against you. Maybe you've got some difficult folks in your life. You can focus on them and become bitter and hateful. Or you can focus on Jesus and be filled with God's love, God's unconditional love, and be able to respond in a way that only happens through gazing upon him. We're not the power source. Jesus is the source. We're like the moon. We mentioned it last week. We just reflect the moon. Try it. Take the focus off your circumstance. Take the focus off what you like and what you don't like and put that focus upon Jesus, upon his glory. Even right now, think for a moment, you're going to heaven. You're going to see and behold the glory of God. This is the worst it's ever going to get. The retirement plan in heaven is great and just keeps going up and up and up in value. It's not affected by the economy our governmental systems, or any of those things, you're going to see and behold the face of Jesus Christ. Look at his throne, study his throne, and see that Jesus is standing at the throne. The rest of the times of the New Testament, we see that Jesus is seated next to the Father. But at this point, we see that Jesus is standing Because as Jesus is seated, it's a position of rest. The work for our salvation has already been accomplished. So Jesus is not standing there next to the Father going, man, I'm really stressed out. I don't know if that gang down there that calls themselves Rocky Mountain Calvary, that are my sons, my daughters, I don't know if they're going to make it. They really had a bad day. Oh, you know, we got to try a little harder. He's seated at the throne. He's not going, oh, no, they just lost their job. I don't know what's going to happen. He's seated at the throne because the work's already been finished. So why does he stand here? He notices, he sees the sacrifice of Stephen, and he's standing to welcome Stephen into his presence. What an encouragement to Stephen. Verse 17, Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him at one accord. There is a unity inside of the book of Acts found in Jesus. This is one of the most common phrases to describe the early church. They're of one accord. But church, brother, sister, and Christ, remember, there's also another group out there that's in unity, and it's Satan's group. And they have absolute unity to come against the cause of Jesus Christ. So they storm at Stephen with one accord, with unity. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him, And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Here's Saul watching with glee as Stephen gets martyred, as Stephen gets stoned, as Stephen gets killed. And at this point in Saul's life, he's filled with glee and he's filled with satisfaction. But I wonder how many times in Saul's life he couldn't get the image of Stephen out of his mind. Stephen had no idea how his sacrifice ultimately would be a seed to win the great apostle of the church. These words that Stephen would speak would be in Saul's mind. Verse 59, and they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God. So he's calling, he's praying, and he's asking for the Lord's help, and this is what he's saying to the Lord. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Don't you look forward to going to heaven? But the means in which to get there is a little scary. I don't I don't have any problem going to heaven. It's the dying part. Remember this. When it comes to your point to go home to be with the Lord, the Lord's going to be with you. And make this your prayer. Lord, receive my spirit. Take me to heaven. It's my, my time to go. Receive me unto you. Where did Stephen learn this prayer? As Jesus was hanging upon the cross. This was Jesus' prayer. I believe Stephen was probably meditating upon the suffering of Christ as he was suffering. He was thinking of the seven statements that Jesus said as he was upon the cross. One of them being, Father unto you I commit my spirit. I release my spirit unto you. So if we're going to release our spirit unto the Lord in death, wouldn't it be wise to release our spirit unto him in life? Say, Lord, I'm, I'm giving you my spirit this evening. Lord, I just give you my spirit tomorrow morning. I want to do your will. I want your kingdom to come. That's the battle. It's the battle for me. Verse 60, and he knelt down and cried with a loud voice. So you can picture Stephen. He's kneeling down and he's being stoned. and These rocks are hitting him. If you get the opportunity to go to Jerusalem, go to Israel, it's really rocky, very arid. There's a lot of material to be throwing at Stephen. Not a very pleasant way to die to be stoned to death, the pain that that he's going through. And this is what he said as he was dying. He says, Lord, do not charge them with sin. And when he said this, he fell asleep. What did Jesus say as he was being crucified? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Man, my response is, Lord, get them. They know exactly what they're doing. That's where I go, apart from meditating upon the Lord, apart from God doing a work in and through my heart. And we see that Stephen is focused upon that sacrifice of Christ and what Jesus did for him and the forgiveness that Jesus extended to others. And he is able to forgive at this point. We've seen so much already in the book of Acts and now we find the first blood that's shed to the point of death of one in the church, a martyr. So many people have gone down this path in church history, this path of martyrdom. And it's the seed of the martyr that's the fire of the church. And we'll find as we continue to study in the book of Acts that it is the persecution and the execution of Stephen that led to even greater growth inside of the church of God. Stephen has to be one that we look up to in Scripture. Amen? We look at his life and we go, here's a man who is willing to be faithful in tables. I'm going to feed some widows. I'm going to wipe some tables. He was faithful there. God gave him great boldness. As you study chapter 7, he had a great handle on the Old Testament Scriptures. God used him so specifically to articulate this great argument to these leaders that wanted to kill him. Very evident that God had marked his life. How does that apply to us? And let's attempt to be faithful in the little things. Just do the little things unto the Lord. God, you've given me these tables. I'm gonna do it unto you. Doesn't seem like it's going anywhere. Doesn't seem like it means anything. But Lord, I'm being faithful to you. And then the greatest passion, the greatest dedication of our life, God, I wanna see your glory. I just wanna behold your glory not even for the sake of impact in my life or being used by God, but God, you're so good, I just want to get to know you. I want to meditate and look upon who you are, Jesus Christ, and allow him to do that work in and through our lives. I know it sounds simplistic, but it really does come down to this, seeing and knowing Jesus in a greater way each and every day, beholding his glory. And as we behold his glory, he does that transforming work.